Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. For a long time, little was understood about the relationship between the developing brain and adult mental illness. Now, with advances in fields such as genetics, epidemiology, and neuroimaging, scientists are teasing out this relationship. The latest issue of Neuropsychopharmacology Reviews is called Neurodevelopment and the Origins of Brain Disorders, and the papers included delve into this topic from a variety of perspectives. The two editors are Pat Levitt, Chair in Developmental Neurogenetics at Children's Hospital Los Angeles, and Jeremy Veenstra Vanderweel, Associate Professor of Psychiatry at Columbia University. Historically, there had been a divide between neurodevelopmental disorders and adult mental illness. Dr. Veenstra Vanderweel explains why that changed. I think that this appreciation for the neurodevelopmental origins of mental illness has emerged really for the last couple of decades, but we're now able to actually support it with experimental evidence. So, for example, um, longstanding data point to the emergence of cognitive dysfunction before the emergence of psychosis and schizophrenia. But now we actually are able to point to largely animal models that help us understand how that might actually occur. Um, And I think that that's true in schizophrenia. It's true in any number of other disorders where we're now able to back up and see the emergence of risk or prodrome before we see the actual, uh, quote-unquote, adult mental illness, thereby clarifying that these aren't adult disorders. These are disorders that have insidious onset, oftentimes starting very, very early in life. Dr. Levitt? I think the other component that's that's come into play where people are now more accepting of, of how there is this bridge that exists is that the, the genetics of neuropsychiatric disorders are converging on specific kinds of genes that seem to increase risk for a particular disorder. And those genes are ones that encode proteins that are involved in part in sort of the basics of brain development, how connections form or the uh, emergence of both excitatory and inhibitory neurons that create this balance of information processing, which when goes awry can lead to both cognitive problems, but also behavioral problems. So I think that the genetics piece has helped in solidifying the thinking around this this risk starting early. And I think the other component is we kind of had the sense that if you perturb something in development, you should see the outcome of it, you know, functionally right away. 
And what we know now from um, a lot of experimental evidence in animal models, as well as studies that are now longitudinal in human populations rather than just simply measuring something at one particular time, that you can see small changes, modest changes, not necessarily changes in function that are part of the diagnostic criteria for a particular neuropsychiatric disorder, but nonetheless you can see these subtle changes which then ultimately are the precursors for for the diagnoses of specific disorders. Accepting that, you're not going to see psychosis at the age of three, I think was a big step too. Are there specific periods that are critical, or does it depend on the particular issue, or is this a continuum? You know, brain architecture doesn't form, um, that is, the different circuits don't form exactly at the same time. And so the period of time that they're most sensitive to experience, and then when that ends or at least gets reduced um, over time, varies. Sensory and motor systems develop really early, so their sensitive and critical periods are very early in childhood, whereas more complex systems that underlie development of, of, of uh, executive functions and cognition and emotional regulation, those are occurring over an extended period of time. And I, and I think that there's now an appreciation that adolescence may be a really unique period in which a number of systems are changing, making it both exciting as well as a period of vulnerability. Um, because when there's change, it means that the, the systems are somewhat unstable and maybe open and amenable to either perturbations or on the exciting and positive side, open to interventions and uh, treatments. Dr. Veenstra Vanderweel? I think that when we flip that on the on the clinical side, like Pat's saying, this may provide us a sense of, of when and how uh, how much emphasis to place on intervention. So, for example, what we've learned about language development suggests that we really need to push that as early as we possibly can. Um, what we're increasingly learning about uh, that adolescent time period may point us to different treatments for adolescents or more intensive treatments for adolescents um, that will allow them to benefit in a similar way to children and to adults. Um, but for whatever reason, they, or for the reason of sensitive periods, there are certain treatments they don't seem to respond as well to um, if we administer them in the standard way. How can an understanding of neurodevelopment lead to earlier or more effective interventions? You know, I think that this is a place where there's a lot of opportunity and only emerging knowledge. So there are some instances where where we're beginning to understand the, the neurological underpinnings of specific rare genetic disorders that manifest across development. And that may be one of the first places where we see how you can actually intervene uh, at a particular time point using a very specific understanding of what's gone awry. That's tremendously exciting to think about, um, but we're just really at the very beginning of that work. Um, I think over time what we're likely to see is a better understanding of neurodevelopment and the origins of disorders that allow us to focus on these specific, be they critical periods, sensitive periods, uh, where our interventions will make a bigger impact. But, you know, I can't say that I know exactly how that will play out. There are places where, where we do know things, so early intensive behavioral interventions in autism, 
hugely important, have a major impact that wouldn't be seen if you'd apply the same intervention, say, in a 12-year-old or a 20-year-old. That's something that you know we didn't have a clear understanding of uh, a couple of decades ago, but that now is really the standard of care. I hope that we see the same thing beginning to emerge as we see early intervention studies for schizophrenia risk. Um, and then I would say we, our burgeoning understanding of the relationship between anxiety seen in quite young children, um, temperament seen, frankly, in babies, and later risk of anxiety disorders and depression means that we should be able to perhaps intervene in something that, that's a little more like a public health approach uh, impact young children to decrease their later risk of some of these disorders. And where do you both think this research needs to go in the future to link these more closely, the relationship between brain development and later neurological disorders, and then interventions? My own view is that we have to um, do a little better job at translating from model systems to human. You know, So a lot of the model systems now are focused on using mice because of the the ability to do, you know, complex genetics as well as readouts of that, which would be physiology and behavior, and, that, and that's great. And, and they have a brain and it develops, and humans have a brain <laughs> and it develops as well. But obviously, you know, time matters. Um, what we're stuck with a little bit is the fact that the human brain develops over a different time frame and across different epochs of an individual's life than a mouse brain. And so there are similarities. Lots of things are conserved in terms of basic mechanisms, but there are differences as well. And we have to recognize those differences and do a better job at understanding how to take the basic science and translate that in a way that has meaning in the context of, of the development of, of uh, children and their brains. Dr. Veenstra Vanderwell? Yeah, I, I would echo that. And, and we need to we need to be upfront about that challenge, um, but I think it also it provides some impetus for us to understand some things on a more basic level in both species, um, so that we can have a clearer sense of what the parallels are and aren't. Uh, but then also look for opportunities to carry things forward in really important experiments, um, be they in uh, intermediate organisms or be they in high risk. Uh, human populations where where we may be able to take ideas um, and translate in, them into fairly transformative treatments. The editors of Neurodevelopment and the Origins of Brain Disorders are Pat Levitt, Chair in Developmental Neurogenetics at Children's Hospital Los Angeles, and Jeremy Veenstra Vanderweel, Associate Professor of Psychiatry at Columbia University. You can find more information online at the Neuropsychopharmacology Review. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. website at www.nature.com/nppr. This is a download from the Nature Publishing Group. I'm Cynthia Graber. Thanks for listening.